Beloved, the story is told of an old, beautiful stone church, Renaissance church in Europe. This beautiful stone church had a beautiful stone archway, and it had the words inscribed above the archway, We Preach Christ Crucified. Back when they built the church, that's precisely what they did. The preacher believed the promises of God and believed in the power of the Word of God, and he preached Christ crucified. As time went on, ivy began to grow, even by way of decoration, over the archway, and it would grow above and around the words. But as time went on, the ivy grew to the point where it actually blocked out the last word, so it said, we preach Christ. And this happened to coincide with some changes of leadership and changes in terms of philosophy of ministry. And the preachers began to become not so much preachers, but orators. And they began to preach sermonettes to, at best, perhaps, Christianettes. They were losing confidence in the promises of God and in the power of the Word of God. The time went on, the ivy continued to grow, and then pretty soon the next word was covered so that the Word said, We preach. And that's precisely what they did. They weren't preachers at all, barely orators. They were speakers. And they were enamored with the cultural fads and fashions of the day. And the word of God fell by the wayside. And when the word of God falls by the wayside, so also God himself falls by the wayside. And the speaker certainly didn't wield the sword of the Spirit. He at best poked with a butter knife. He tickled the congregation with a Q-tip, so to speak. Beloved, here in Gilbert, Arizona, in the 22nd century, we, 21st century, sorry, we believe in the power of the Word of God. We thank God for the privilege of a free country and open Bibles. But the question is, what do we do with it? How do we handle the Word of God? Some decades ago, J.I. Packer said, in one of his more cogent moments, said this, quote, A well-worn Bible is an impressive, if not a beautiful, sight. Its much-thumbed parts reveals its owner's favorite pastures and are eloquent of the blessing and battles of their Christian life. Such Bibles are not so common today as in former generations. In many homes, the Bible, like Shakespeare, rests quietly in the family bookcase. Both volumes bearing mute testimony by their cleanness and stiff bindings to an entire neglect of their content. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Our passage this morning are verses 12 and 13, which come, of course, on the heels of verses 1 through 11. We saw, by way of an example from God through the author of Hebrews back in chapter 2, and even in the first 11 verses of chapter 4, the first generation of Israel out of the Exodus that wandered in the wilderness, who even though God had supernaturally rescued them from Egypt, even though God supernaturally provided for them daily, they didn't believe the promise of God. They said, we'll die of thirst, we'll starve. We're like grasshoppers in the sight of these giants that are in the land that God promised to us. And even when they were forced to believe the promise of God, even by virtue of the daily provision he provided for them, the water out of the rock and the manna from heaven, even though they believed the promise, they didn't want the promise. They said, manna. All we have is this manna. That was the danger they faced. And 
The same danger that that first generation of Israel faced was the same danger that David's generation of Israel faced when he wrote Psalm 95. And it's the same danger that this audience of Hebrew believers to whom the author writes faced. This Hebrew, this group of Hebrew believers to whom the author writes this book had become weak-kneed and faint-hearted. And that is the same danger and risk for us. But part of the good news is the same voice that spoke to that first generation, the same voice that spoke through David when he wrote Psalm 95, the same voice that wrote this book, the same voice that speaks to us today with the voice of God, which is the Bible, is extant, is speaking to us today, and is relevant and is applicable. Beloved, hear the word of God as I read Hebrews verses 12, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. This is the word of God. It begins... Someone's excited. (laughs) For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts. Now, beloved, as opposed to verses 1 through 11, if you were here last Sunday, verses 1 through 11 is one of the most incredibly complex, complicated portions of Scripture. There's no, there, it has one simple, straightforward message, which is the eternal rest of God, which is what all humans should seek, all believers are promise but there's no outline it's just incredibly rich tapestry of themes and topics now in contrast to that the outline of our passage this morning is very simple and straightforward namely the word of God in verse 12 and God of the word in verse 13 and as we go through this here this morning we'll spend most of our time in verse 12. And beloved, God's intent, the author's intent for that original audience, God's intent for you and for me is that we would come to know more the word of the Lord so that we would come to know more the Lord of the word. May your word, God, be our rule. May your spirit be our guide and may your glory be our goal, even as we sang in that song earlier. Now, the big picture aim, beloved, of life in chapter 4, as revealed by God to us, is to enter into the rest of God, enter into the eternal rest, the abiding rest, the ultimate rest, the final rest, the Sabbath rest that is available through Jesus Christ. And the danger, the warning that we have here in the text is that some will fall out of the race. Why is that? Why do people fall out of the race? And we've been given the answer, it is because of unbelief, it is because of disobedience. So what God wants each of us to do is to take the truth in the truths in this text, apply it to our lives so that we don't make shipwreck of our life and fail to enter the rest of God. That we would continue to be believing in the promise of God, in all the promises of God. That 
our perseverance would be the evidence of our assurance. And that we would, even as we looked at the command he gave back in verse 1, that we would fear lest we fall. And then the second command in verse 11, that we would work so that we would win the prize of eternal rest. So, beloved, first in verse 12, it is the word of God. And as the author even opened up this book back at the beginning of chapter 1, we understand that the first and fundamental way in which God demonstrates his love to us after creating us is speaking to us. Now, we know that he encouraged us, he commanded us, as I just mentioned in verse 11, to work, to be diligent so that we will complete the race. At the same time, we understand it is the grace of God and it is grace alone that brings us into his rest. And what he tells us here in verse 12 is that the God of grace brings us into his rest by means of his word, by means of the Bible that we hear and that we receive. And what we see, beloved, in verse 12 is that the word of God gives life, it cuts deep, and it judges well. It gives life. This is how he opens up verse 12. Beloved, the word of God breathes life where there was death. And this vitality of the Bible is eternal and abiding. Look at how it begins in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. The word of God, some ancient and even medieval commentators and pastors thought, some of them thought that the word of God here was referring to Christ. Of course, Christ is referred to as the word of God, but the clear context here is the written word of God. It goes all the way back to verse 2. It goes back to the good news back in verse 2. It goes back even to the very last word in verse 11, disobedience. The problem of the first generation of Israel in the wilderness was they were disobedient to the word of God, the spoken word of God, the written word of God. So that is what he is talking about here. He says, for... For that little three-letter preposition that tells us that what God is doing is he's providing ammunition. He's providing purpose and justification to the commands he gave to fear lest we fail and work so that we would win. And beloved, what God tells you and me here in verse 12 is a reminder of the preeminence and the priority of the word of God in your life. That we would Ask ourselves, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, am I trusting God right now? Am I believing God in my decisions? Or am I believing the lies of sin? Am I trusting the lies of sin? Now, for us here at Santan Bible Church, we are blessed to be a teaching church. The ministry of the Word comes from the pulpit, from our Bible hour classes, our women's ministry, our table talk, men's ministry, our children's ministry, VBS, and all the rest. So when we think of the lies of sin, we probably don't need to be overly concerned with the lies of heresy. But what about the more subtle? What about the less obvious lies? And in fact, when we think about the lies of sin, those that are less obvious are more dangerous. Satan doesn't come dressed in red with a pitchfork and a tail and horns. He comes disguised as an angel of light. So those lies of sin, of the pleasures of sin, those that are less obvious are in fact more dangerous. How about one example? How about the lie of distraction? We can have many noble and good and even God-honoring pursuits, but if 
these even noble pursuits begin to distract us from the work of the Lord, begin to distract us from the sole authority of the Bible, that can become dangerous. A historical example, Martin Luther. Martin Luther, the great reformer, one of the great reformers among many, John Calvin and others, wrote many books. Luther expressed that he would wish that all of his books would be burned before they would take any child of God and distract him or her from the authority of the only true fount of wisdom, namely Scripture. Here's a quote from Luther in 1538 talking about the benefit of the writings of godly men that had gone before him and how our sole focus should be on Scripture. This is what Luther wrote. He said, the writings of all the Holy Fathers should be read only for a time in order that through them we may be led to the Holy Scriptures. As it is, however, he elucidates the problem, we read them only to be absorbed in them and never come to the Scriptures. We are like men who study that signpost and never travel the road. Beloved, any time we fall into sin, whether it's a sin of distraction or any other sin, at that moment in time, we are believing the lie rather than the Word of God. The lies of the pleasures of sin, that should be part of our ongoing prayers. Lord, help me to continually believe and trust your promises rather than the lies of the God of this world. Well, I mentioned earlier as we continue to go through 12 and verse 13 as well that there is a very simple and straightforward outline with these two verses. Now having said that, this is still the same incredibly brilliant author and there are a number of striking word orders in the original language and even a number of striking word choices. There are many words, many Greek words here in verses 12 and 13 that appear only once in the entire Bible here in this passage. One of the ways in which he brings us out is this word order. He says, for the word of God is living and active. And actually the word living there is thrust all the way to the very beginning of the original sentence. It literally says living for the word of God is and active. So he puts that word living before even the little preposition for. Very striking. And this is one of the ways that the Bible authors would really thrust forward something to grab our attention. I'll give you an example. In 1 John 2.4, the Apostle John writes, as it's recorded, translated in the New American Standard, 1 John 2.4, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, in the original Greek, John takes that word liar and puts it at the beginning of that phrase. It literally says, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, liar he is, and the truth is not in him. Well, beloved, in the same way, what the author does here at the beginning of verse 12 is he says, living, living, the word of God is living and active, energase, energetic. The word active, that's the word from which we get our English word energy, energetic. And he's doing the same type of perspective, viewpoint on the abiding power and vivaciousness, if I can use that word, of the word of God. As, for example, Stephen, godly Stephen, the first martyr 
in the New Testament. In Acts 7, verse 38, when Stephen was describing how God gave his word to Moses, Stephen is recorded, Acts 7, 38, that he, Moses, received living oracles to pass on to you. Not just oracles, not just statutes, but living oracles. That's what godly Stephen said when he knew he was going to be stoned to death shortly. Dear beloved, your Bible is not in your hand, is not a dead letter. It is a living word. That's why, for example, Peter, Peter echoed the same mentality, the same viewpoint as Stephen, as the author of Hebrews. The apostle Peter, in his first epistle, 1 Peter 1, 23, says, you've been born again. Not of seed which is perishable, but seed which is imperishable. That is, through the living and abiding word of God. Going forward in history, a gentleman, Lefaire de Tappel, said this. He said this word, quote, is not a transient and evanescent word, which, when uttered, is immediately diffused through the air and perishes. It's a permanent word. It's not carried off, not dispersed, not diffused, but sustaining and abiding and binding together all things, end quote. Beloved, that is the power of this living scripture, of the living oracles. Maybe you've heard the expression, perhaps even stated out of a good heart, but, you know, we need to make scripture come alive. Now, Maybe that is, if it's said, coming from a good heart, but it's really silly nonsense, beloved. The Word of God is alive, and there's nothing a wee, frail little worm of a man could do to add to its liveliness. To be sure, I, any, all of us as believers need to study and show ourselves approved with the handling of the Word of God. But we can't do anything to add to the liveliness of the Word of God any more than a man could try to make the sun hotter by any measure of activity. Beloved, dear friend, the thoughts and opinions of men come and go, but the Word of God is always relevant and is eternally applicable. So, the Bible is alive. And the Bible that is alive gives life to the spiritually dead. And there are so many examples through history. Every Christian, of course, every Christian here today is a living example of that. But as I was thinking of this, I was thinking of the true stories, the one story of the KGB agent that had a special charter given by the Communist Party to go after underground Christians. And as such, he had a Bible. And God saved this KGB agent merely by reading scripture without any human witness. Or we can think of Alberto Solano, who we're blessed to co-labor with. Alberto is studying at Oxford right now. God has been using him in Guadalajara in planning a church uh, there. And his parents, Alberto's parents, were in a small Bible study in a Roman Catholic church with a few other couples. And God saved some of those couples without any human witness, merely by them studying the Bible. Or the true example of a Roman Catholic man in Sicily who came to Christ during a severe paper shortage after World War II because of a single page of Scripture. 
paper after World War II was extremely scarce. So what merchants would do is they would take their wares and they would use old newspapers and other scraps of paper to wrap their products. And this man went to a fish market, bought a fish, and when he went home and unpacked and unwrapped the fish, besides the other scraps of paper, there was one page taken out of a New Testament that some priest had confiscated from a parishioner and thrown into the garbage. And it was a page out of the book of Romans. And this man read Romans 4, verse 5, where God, through Paul, writes, To the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Beloved, God saved, he took this one page of scripture, that one verse, and God saved this man who'd been a lifelong church attender but had never before read the Bible for himself. It makes us think of the Apostle Paul also writing to the church in Rome, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because it's the power of God to salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or the 17th century English divine Jeremiah Burroughs said, the word of God enters into our heart and transforms our experience. Later on, Burroughs also said, the best defense of it, the word of God, is the immediate use of it. Or the beautiful lyrics, and can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's might. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Thine eye diffused a life-giving ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Beloved, the word of God in your hands, in your hand, in your hands, gives life. It gives life. And as we continue, verse 12, it also cuts deep. Beloved, the Bible is penetrating. It is piercing. It's an invasive power. It gets inside of us. It shines light in the darkest recesses of our being. It penetrates the whole person. The word of God is dividing and discriminating. That's why the author says it's living and active and, watch, sharper than any two-edged sword. Any two-edged sword. This was a certain sword that was a small short sword used in hand-to-hand close combat by the Roman soldier. Beloved, the metaphor, the illustration that the author, that God is brilliantly using here, is used to instruct us that your Bible, your sword, cuts sharply and it pierces deeply. Steve Lawson said, the word of God is a sword that pierces. It's not a Q-tip that tickles. He's the source of what I mentioned even before. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of Christ, said, or speaking the words of Christ, said, Isaiah 49, 2, he's made my mouth. This is the son talking about the father. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. Or John, in Revelation 19, verse 15, speaking again of Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations. Just two more examples of where God uses this metaphor of a sword to capture the piercing power of his word that cuts deeply. We might think if we go to a doctor or a dentist and uh, if he's going to give us a a shot, they'll say, well, you'll you'll feel a little pinprick. But this word here doesn't give a little pinprick. It's like open heart surgery. It's a scalpel. And 
It's a somber realization when we remember that the same scalpel that a surgeon can use to save a life, a madman can use to take a life. And dear brother or sister, regardless of your ministry, whether it's a ministry from the pulpit, ministry in a Bible hour class, a Titus II woman ministry in women's ministry, table talk, children's ministry, it's a solemn responsibility to be given by God a two-edged sword. And in fact, what we have here is sharper than any two-edged sword. And dear friend, or actually I should say beloved, because God has given you a sword, you don't have the option, I don't have the option to poke you with a butter knife. I don't have the option to tickle the ears with a Q-tip. The awesome responsibility that each of us have as a swordsman, as a swordswoman, should always humble us, but never paralyze us because we trust the Lord and his strength is our might and power and it is our adequacy that comes from the word of God, not from ourselves. And even from the pulpit, Bible preaching will produce a Bible reading and Bible using congregation. And a Bible reading and Bible using congregation will encourage a Bible preaching pastor, Bible preaching elders, Bible preaching leadership. And we who are on the receiving end of the ministry of the word must pray for those who wield the sword. Obvious examples, I leave to yourself. Let me give one way of application. Children, children, pray for your parents. Pray for your parents' growth in the word, in their understanding of the word. Pray for your parents as they wield the sword of God in their ministry to you. Pray that God would bless them through their understanding and through their teaching. And God will greatly bless you with riches, with 10,000 charms, 10,000 times 10,000 charms and treasures that come from within the pages of Scripture. It cuts deeply. The author continues, look at the middle of verse 12, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow. Now, he's using this language here. The author's concern here has nothing to do with the physiological, psychological, or anatomical analysis of the human constitution. He's using this language to tell us that the word of God is the deep fount well, excuse me, the word of God is a source of the wisdom for the deep fount of our life in all its aspects. Soul and spirit, joints and marrow, spiritual, intellectual, moral, and emotional, we are a single unified entity. And there's nothing so hard, there's nothing so deeply hidden, he wants us to understand that the word of God won't uncover and bring to life. Beloved, the Bible cuts to the quick those who hear and those who receive. How about those that don't know the word of God? How about our evangelism? Have you heard the expression, well, he or she, they're, they're not quite ready for the gospel. Yeah, <laughs> they're never, no one's ready for the gospel. No one is. I wasn't, no one is ready for the gospel. But what can open a hard heart? What can make deaf ears hear? What gives sight to the blind? God and God alone, and God uses the Bible to do just that. That is what God is telling us here in Hebrews verse 12. And beloved, by the way, this two-edged sword that he's talking about here has no blunt sides. In other words, part of it is whatever way you swing it, it cuts. 
That's part of the imagery that he's using. It cuts with the edge of life, and it cuts with the edge of death. Saving or condemning. Softening or hardening. The same sun that melts the clay hardens the wax. That's why Paul told the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Beloved, dear friend, the Bible brings consolation to the repentant, and it does also bring condemnation to the unrepentant, to the disobedient, uh, verse 11, to the unbelief, the unbelieving of the verses before. So the word of God gives life, it cuts deep. Last, here in verse 12, it judges well. The word of God leaves nothing hidden. It reveals who we are completely. Nothing remains untouched, including our thoughts and attitudes. All of them face the sharp edge of God's dividing word. At the end of verse 12, he says, and it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, judge. Now, when we hear the word judge, we often might kind of have a knee-jerk reaction to think of just the condemnation. But the word judge here doesn't just, it does mean, it can mean condemnation, but it also can mean encouragement, means an assessment. Uh, you might think of taking a car or taking an antique you might have to an expert and say, what, what's your judgment of this? You want an assessment. And the word translated judge is kritikos, the original Greek word. We get the English word critic from this, one who is able to discern. So the point here, there is a warning here, and there is also encouragement. And God saves some with a greater weight on one, on a warning. God saves others, another, by the promise. All of it is from God. All of it comes from swinging and cutting and using the sword of the Spirit. The point God says here is that Scripture gets to the bottom of the layers of the stuff that we put to try to hide what's on the inside. It untangles the human heart and it unearths what's on the inside, what lies below. And even as we think, as we apply this, I don't think it's so much even here differentiating between or dividing between good and bad. I don't even think that in the author's mind and ultimately in God's mind through the author, it's a matter of differentiating between good, better, and best. When we look at the context of chapter 3 all the way up through here, I think what he's talking about here is for us to take this and say, Lord, what is unbelieving in my heart and what is believing in my heart? Like the godly, righteous centurion, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I'm reminded again of VBS this week. What a joy, what a blessing, as Scott said. I mean, we had the, the normal retinue of godly single women, godly moms and wives, godly older ladies that one might expect in VBS. And what an absolute blessing for all the young people, the youth, uh, high school and college people that were there helping. And men, fathers, the security guards. What a joy and what a blessing. And this was a beautiful reflection of the reality is that the heartbeat of everything we do here at Santan Bible Church, including VBS, begins with an open Bible. And that's what all of us as Christians should have in our life. That's what Ezra had. For example, Ezra 7 verse 10 
Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach statutes and ordinances, teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Or Nehemiah, the people, the people in a wonderful reflection of God moving in the hearts of all the people. Nehemiah 8.1, all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. And then in verse 8, and they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Beloved, so we preach the word, not the fads and fashions of culture, not even the silly fads and fashions that continue to assault the evangelical church in ways and waves. And each of us, it's a call from God for us to approach the word of God with a heart of submission rather than a heart of suspicion. May his word be our rule, his spirit be our guide, and his glory be our goal. Let us be preoccupied with the word of the Lord, so as to be preoccupied with the one to whom the word points. And that takes us from the word of God to God of the word in verse 13. Beloved, God the Lord shines brightly in all every page of his word and certainly in the book of hebrews certainly in verses 12 and 13 he sees all he knows all and he judges all we see this in verse 13 he sees all look at the beginning of verse 13 and there is no creature hidden from his sight psalm 33 verses 13 through 15 the Lord looks from heaven. Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. Or Jeremiah 16, verse 17, God says, My eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Beloved, dear friend, God sees all. God knows all. And there's a warning and a threat in that, and there's an encouragement and a promise. We can think of Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant that was driven out from the home of Abraham and Sarah with her baby Ishmael. And she was off in the wilderness, and God came and found her in the wilderness in Genesis 16. And one of the great aspects of the perfections of God that jumps out from that passage is he is a God who sees. He sees uh, this Egyptian maidservant in her affliction in the wilderness. And she, and she says, this is a well, she names a, a well, Be'er L'chai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. Four other times she drives home the point that God sees, God sees, God sees. So there is a warning behind that and there is great encouragement and promise as well. God sees all. God knows all. Nothing escapes the scrutiny of the omniscient God. Verse 13, the author continues, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. Open, gumna, literally naked. 
Uh, we get the word gymnasium, gymnasium from this. In athletic contests, they would strip down to their loincloth, so they would be free to have their athletic competition here. Naked and laid bare. The word laid bare is fascinating. It's the word tracholizomai. It's the only appearance of that. This is one of those many words here of the only appearance in the New Testament. And it comes from a root meaning talking about neck or throat. We get the English word tracheotomy from this. And the way this word was used, it would be used sometimes in wrestling matches where they would put a chokehold on their opponent and it would be used to talk about their chokehold on the neck. The word would also be used to describe a situation where a conquering soldier would take a conquered enemy with his face down and take the sword and lift his face up and expose his neck. And it would even be used to describe the bending back and exposing of the neck of a sacrificial victim, an animal, or even in the horrific practice of humans. That is the powerful, vivid language that God is using to describe his seeing all and knowing all. It's the same kind of sentiment, the same kind of truth describing God that the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah 17, verse 10, where God says through Jeremiah, I the Lord, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind. Or chapter 9, verse 23, I am he who knows, and I am a witness, declares Yahweh. Or Solomon, in Proverbs 5, verse 21, in this portion of Proverbs, Solomon is encouraging young men to keep their way pure, to Believe the promise of God, not the, the lie of the pleasures of sin. In Proverbs 5.21, Solomon writes, The ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. So, beloved, God sees all, God knows all. Finally, God judges all. Every creaturely covering and pretext is stripped away. There's no recess, there's no dark depth to ourselves that's not wide open before the scanning, searching, gazing eyes of the Lord. And he finishes, and with whom, or excuse me, with whom we have to do. Literally, toward whom, to we, the word. It just, it's, it's a fascinating phrase. The English Standard Version translates this, to whom we must give an account. The or Young's literal translation translates this, with whom is our reckoning, with whom we have to do. Beloved, the point here is God is the judge. He is the judge, and there will be a reckoning. So when we look at this, when we look at verse 13 and realize that this just echoes what we see through all of Scripture, that tells us that we're bare-naked sinners before a righteous and holy God, we realize that this is in head-on collision with our natural impulses and all the messages that barrage us from the world day by day. The God of the Word tells us in the Word of God that this comes with the warning that began back in chapter 3, verse 7. He won't be fooled by half-hearted faith. There will be a reckoning and back in the overarching purpose of chapter 4, God will deny his eternal rest to unbelievers. The Scottish city of Glasgow, coat of arms, is fascinating. It 
shows the supposed miracles of the patron founding saint of Glasgow, Mungo. The supposed miracles that it shows are the tree that never grew, the bird that never flew, the fish that never swam, and the bell that never rang. But what's more fascinating is to this day, the coat of arms of the city of Glasgow says, let Glasgow flourish. But the original coat of arms, that quote was a longer, more extended quote, and it came from the 6th century sermon of the missionary Mungo. Uh, and what he originally said, which was the original verbiage on the coat of arms, was let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of his name. Over time, they took out that middle phrase, and it became let Glasgow flourish by the praising of his name, and then it eventually morphed, devolved into let Glasgow flourish. Beloved, the point here is when you remove the word of God, inevitably you remove God from the equation. When the word of God is neglected, the God of the word is neglected. But, but God will again deny his eternal rest to unbelievers, but God opens and gives his eternal, final, ultimate, perfect rest to believers. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Beloved, again, the author of Chronicles, the author of Hebrews, God opens his eternal rest to believers. Or even as we would go towards the end of this magnificent epistle, this magnificent sermonic epistle, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. He himself, the author says, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? By virtue of believing in the promise of God, what can man do to me? We will fear God and God alone, and we will not fear man who can kill, but then his power stops. Rather, we will fear the one who can kill and then has the authority to cast into hell and has the authority and the power to rescue sinners and to grant new life and to give them promise of an eternity with them in heaven. And I'll close by referencing, turn back to 1 Samuel 2 again. We did the public reading of scripture from godly Hannah's beautiful prayer. And in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10 is the entire prayer. But look at what Hannah says in the middle and end of verse 3. 1 Samuel 2, verse 3, in the middle For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Verse 4 at the end, the feeble gird on strength. The barren gives birth to seven. The Lord makes poor and rich. He raises the poor from the dust, verse 8. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. And she goes on from there, beloved, godly Hannah trusted and believed the promise of God. And actually, that's the second prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel. The first prayer was back in chapter 1, verse 11. It was a much shorter prayer. 
Hannah said to God, she said, O Lord of hosts, 1 Samuel 1.11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. That was Hannah's prayer, and in this case, God answered that prayer to faithful Hannah. Beloved, the word of God is living. It is active. It gives life. It cuts deep. It judges well. May we trust God in all that he does and believe moment by moment for his glory, for our blessing, for our empowerment, even as we would take this good news to a lost and dying world. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you, Lord God, for giving us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness in the pages of Scripture. Thank you for the blessing of the body of Christ. We praise you and thank you for the universal church of Christ. Every land, tongue, tribe, and nation, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, different languages, educated and uneducated. We are all saved in the same way, by the same Savior, by faith alone in you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would bless us in all that we do to glorify you, to be an encouragement to one another, and to be bold and courageous as we take this good news to this world. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord, that we pray these things, that we sing these songs. And in your name, Lord Jesus, we all say, amen.